Hi, and welcome to Relatable, a podcast dedicated to simplifying the complexities of modern everyday relationships. What if being great at relationships was easy for you? How would that change your life? How would that impact the people you love? I'm Fiona Lukies. Join me as I pull back the curtain on how easy it is for you to up your relationship game so you can enjoy effortless relationships with anyone in your life and become more relatable. Hi everyone, I just wanted to record a very quick intro for the intro of today's podcast. I recorded today's episode late last year and it was going to be the first episode I released this year and then I was thinking about my intention for the year and what I wanted to create and I was doing that on my break and my time off in early January and that's when the idea for setting the intention of letting love in in 2022 came to mind and so I recorded that podcast because I just felt that needed to be put out before this one, because I think this one is a wonderful reflection of that. I just love the synchronicity of the universe sometimes. Today's podcast is a beautiful reflection in many, many, many ways of the power of letting love in. And I think what Anthony shares, my guest today, is gorgeous when it comes to the facets and the different ways in which we can view that. Now, I do want to give you a heads up. There is some swearing. Anthony does go into details about the illness that he has. And I undenied over to whether to leave some of that in there, but I just think there's so much gold and I wanted this to be real and open with all of you. And I think Anthony has just got such a delightful way of sharing and being with you that I've left this as real as I can. So, yep, there's a little bit of swearing. And yes, Anthony does give you a pretty graphic overview of some of the things he's had to deal with with his illness. But I think all of that is a very, very powerful reminder of the power of letting love into your life. So I just wanted to preface that before we get into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Relatable. I have a very, very, very special guest on the show today. I'm so excited to introduce you to him. I've been lucky enough to get to know Anthony Breslin over the last few months, and he is a joy and a delight. And I think someone who has a lot of wisdom, humility, and grace to share with us all. And so I've asked him on the podcast today because I think his story is one that many of us can learn from. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I I feel privileged that you asked me because you are incredible with what you do. You know, what you channel to serve other people is uh, simply amazing and I'm totally in admiration of it. Oh, thank you, Anthony. And that's the honest truth. That's the honest truth. Thank you. Thank you. I would love it if you could share your story. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Anthony Breslin is an incredibly talented and very, very well-known and highly regarded artist. He's had over 60 exhibitions and it's not just art. He's put on plays. He's, he's, he's been involved in live theatre. He's I mean, I could go on and on with the things that Anthony has done in his short time on this earth. Very, very, very creative man and just a gorgeous human being. So please tell us about you, Anthony. Well, I've been very fortunate, I guess, in a way to have an art career that gave me a living, you know, for like up till pretty much now, 25 years, which has been an amazing experience in itself. I mean, 
It came with a lot of risk-taking, of course, because you have to kind of take a risk to get a reward. That's certainly what happened to me. And, it, you know, for a long time I didn't really know what to do with myself. You know, I just knew that the voices inside of me were telling me that I was not meant to have a conventional life of, like my friends were doing, the picket fence and getting married and having the children. And all. I just, even though I've got a son now, I just, that was never the path for me. So it was always once I stumbled across through incredible different interventions through providence you know finding a path once i got onto it i just was able to manifest so many incredible opportunities and to the point where eventually i knew that if i acted on something if i had passion and a drive to act on something that i would manifest the how and i realized many years ago that the how is never important when people get consumed by the how they get over-consumed with the how and nothing happens from that from it because they're over-consumed in how they're going to do it. But I just find that if I move towards an aspiration or a passion, like I'm talking about things that come completely out of left and field, getting funding for something out of the blue from nowhere, a lot of funding for something that's an idea that I've already started acting on, it, it's been incredible. It's happened to me over and over and over again. So I feel like m- my whole career has been blessed upon me it doesn't really come from me it comes it's come through me and the, over the years I've realized that 150 percent you know all the time and even how my paintings not everyone's into my paintings of course they're not mine anyway so I don't really care anymore I mean it's lovely when someone resonates with it and it speaks to them but I have no say in what it says to them often when people say to me what is this paint when they want to buy the painting and they say what does it mean? First thing I do always is reverse it and say, what does it mean to you? And they start going into what, that, what it means to them. And, I, and I'm thinking that I never made it with that intention, but that doesn't mean that intention's not right. If it's right for them, it's correct. It's right because all my work is a bit abstracted because it's really not coming from a place of the left brain. If I don't pre-plan it or work it all out and then make it, it kind of just makes itself. And so many times I've written down an idea for a project and the project might be huge. And then I wait for the opportunity for that project to be manifested if it's meant to be. And most of the time it does. And I've just scribbled the whole idea on a piece of paper. Then all of a sudden I've got a school ringing me up going, we want to do a project with you. And I go, well, I've just scribbled this project down and it's a huge project. And they're like, yeah, we'll get the funding for it. We'll we'll do it. I'm like, fantastic, you know happened to me so many times so many times it's amazing the more i give myself over to the fact that i don't own anything that i make and that i don't create any opportunities really that happen to me the more they happen including the mural project recently which i did which is a 40 meter by five meter um, mural at the time i was very sick i was on life support for two years and with kidney failure eight percent kidney function so i wasn't feeling very crash hot and I'd already had a, a transplant before that as well. And I think I told you the story. I knew it had to be in Murrumbina. And I went to drive around Murrumbina to look at this wall that I wanted for this project. I realised I wasn't going to really be able to get that wall. And, but I felt this, felt this calling that I was meant to do this mural. And so I drove around, walked around this wall, looked at it, tried to manifest this wall. And then I realised it's not going to happen with this wall. So then I felt really dejected about it all because I knew there was a calling to do it. So then I drove home 
and went to bed and sort of thought, maybe I just need to let this go, even though it feels like it's meant to be. The next morning, I get a phone call out of the blue from a guy I hardly know. I've only met him once or twice. and hadn't talked to him for about a year, saying, I don't know if you're interested, but I've got this big wall and I want to know if you want to do a project on it. I said to him, you've got to be joking. You know, I was down there yesterday around that area, driving around, trying to get this other wall. And he goes, oh, that wall, that wall's nothing compared to the wall that I've got. So I said, I can't remember the wall that, that you're talking about, even though it's right next to the other wall. So I drove back there, met him at the wall, and went, oh, my God, this wall was right in front of my eyes. I didn't even bloody see it. That's how I got the wall to do this idea for this project. It was just given to me by him. No, now I've got about 20 questions about manifestation and manifesting things for you that I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat with what you're saying. Whereabouts is this wall? If you're in Melbourne and you want to see it, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing and it, and it has done so much for the community where you've built this mural. It gives people a lot of joy and I know you've, you've told me the story of people that have actually moved to that suburb so that they could be near your mural. So where, where can someone find that if they want to go and see it? <laughs> Uh, it's across the road from um, Murrumbina Skyrail Station, next to Levi Cafe. You can't miss it. It's massive. It's like 200 panels. And it's based on a story from my children's book called The Story of Big Frog because Murrumbina means the land of the frog. So I've done three. This is my third big project in that area. And all of those projects were manifested from nothing. This wall was tough because I was sick. It took me a year and a half. I had a few assistants helping me, they would just paint the backgrounds and I'd paint all the figures, all the giant frogs, and it's, it's full of giant frogs. It's got 10, two and a half metre by two and a half metre giant frogs, and it's got about 180 smaller panels that make it up. Wow. It sounds amazing. And for those of you who are in Melbourne and you want to see it, it's at the Murrumbina, it's right next to the Murrumbina Sky Rail Station. Leading on to that, Anthony is also a published author. He's in the middle of writing a book right now. He's published about, what is it, three or four books? Two, and this, this will be my third. But This will be your third. It's, we've got to the editor, working with the editor now, so it's got to that stage now, which is really great. That's so exciting. That's, that's amazing. So you're a published author, you're an amazing artist you've produced live theater i know you've traveled the world you've had a very colorful life anthony but maybe you want to share with people when you said that you were on life support what happened in 2014 i was diagnosed with my dysplastic syndrome which is a cancer of the blood i was feeling quite weak at the time and um because my past was like i was very athletic and very strong. I'd won a, a, a title in powerlifting and I'd competed three times in Mr. Australia bodybuilding championships drug-free and I'd done a few powerlifting competitions and qualified for the nationals in two different weight classes. So I was very big, I was very solid, very muscular. I loved training really hard. I was really into really training hard. And then I was diagnosed with blood cancer in 2014 which was a bit of a shock. At the time, I wanted to try and find some sort of wisdom to do with why I was having this journey. Because my brother, who was a beautiful person who I loved very much, he died from leukemia when he was 38. And this particular um, blood cancer was to manifest in the, exactly the same leukemia my brother had. That's what was going to happen with it. That's what I was told. 
And so while I was in the stages of just being, well, just being a blood cancer, I decided to do an ayahuasca ceremony, which some of the people listening will probably know about. It's ingesting a plant substance, which basically, in a nutshell, can help you come face to face with your maker or the other side in some way, you know. So I decided to go away for a weekend doing an ayahuasca ceremony. I knew it would take a lot out of me doing the ceremony, usually because you're ingesting it, it's going into your stomach. You usually purge. They say ayahuasca purges when you throw up a lot. And it can be very draining because it's a very intense experience. So I went away and I did that, and I had incredible insight. Many things happened. It was an incredible visual experience, like mind-blowingly visual, beyond description. Well, I was seeing all these entities and I was in this, I was in the center of this pris, prismic kind of world, which was infinite. And I was at the center of it. And I could see it was just infinite, it had multi millions of dimensions. And within that place, I was told two statements over and over and over again, telepathically, but it was so powerfully telepathically communicated to me that it, it was far clearer than being told on a human level the same statements. The first one was, you just are. I was told over and over again, you just are. You just are. And when any semblance of a question about can you, even though I felt I knew intrinsically what that statement meant, as soon as I started trying to grapple with that statement, the meaning came in. The meaning came in like telepathically as well. You're not sick. You're not well. You're not old. You're not young. You're not weak. You're not strong. You're not anything. You just are and you always will be. Over and over again, I was told that, that all these labels that I may give to myself are irrelevant because you just are and you always will be. So with, you're going through experiences in life, and I've always been addicted to experiences, but this experience and your thoughts around the experience will never become who you are. You just are and you always will be. Then the next statement I got was, it felt like this went on for ages with the first statement, but I don't know about time because there was really no time in this dimension and there was no time or space at all. And I was the experience I was having. I was the statement. I was the words. There was no space in between me receiving it and me hearing it, if that makes any sense. I was it. The next statement was, we make something out of everything. We make something out of everything. We make something out of everything. Straight away, the meaning came. We say that's bad, that's good, that person's attractive, that person's ugly, this is hard, this is easy. We make all those judgments on everything and we create something out of nothing. We create something out of everything. We place the tags on it and as soon as we do that, we name it and we limit it. We put it into a box. So it was teaching me not to do that, that I don't need to do that. I don't need to make those judgments on anything around me because those judgments are really only being placed as a source of security, you know, so I can put the world and my existence in the world into a context. But it doesn't need to have a context. As soon as I give it a context, I give it a limitation. I limit its potential. So I took those two statements and I'll never forget them for the rest of my life. I refer back to them daily. If I'm confronted with something that I'm thinking that I know is falsity, I'll just revert back to those two statements, you know. I don't need to brand that as something or something here or whatever because it's irrelevant. It's not any of those things that I will brand it with. At the end of it all, went on for a long time, eight, nine hours. At the end of it, I was completely spent. 
I went outside and I, I was very sick, came back in, stumbled outside because as I was walking outside, everything was just flickering with all these different colours and even in the dark, I could see the dimensions of the plants out there like becoming infinite dimensions of themselves and so I struggled outside and threw up, struggled back inside and went through the rest of the experience. And then I was very weak after it. And a few days later, I got worse. And then I was diagnosed with uh, myeloid acute leukemia, my bro- the same leukemia my brother had. I, at that point, I had what's called 20% blast cells. Blast cells, leukemia creates cells like in your bone marrow. Instead of them being red cells or white cells or plasma, they become blast cells and blast cells are useless and they take over your bone marrow and they squash the production of the red cells, the the white cells and the plasma. So you end up having less of them and so that's how you die because you die because you have no immune system left and you die because your body can't carry oxygen anymore because that's what red cells do and you can't clot because you've got no, your plasma production is taken down. So you start to become exhausted really quickly because you can't breathe properly and you become really weak. You get a cold, you can die from the cold. And as the blast cells continue, they'll just continue to a point where it's game over, you know, you just, you'll just die. Mine were at 20%. So 20% is pretty high. I was feeling terrible, you know. So I was rushed into hospital to get chemo, even though I never in my life wanted to ever get chemotherapy. I had no choice, really. I mean, there's no way I could manifest or do anything about getting well that quickly. It was impossible because I already knew that I was dying. I felt it. I felt everything start to just implode on itself and I became weak. I started to lose my voice um, and I knew that that's what it felt like to begin to die. Even though when we're born, we're, we start to die when we're born, really, but when you get to those kind of stages where you really feel... Everything's been sped up and I really felt like I was starting to die. And I felt that experience now, I don't know how many times, must be five times when I've been in my body knowing that I'm dying and then I've miraculously recovered, you know. Wow. I mean, Anthony, it's an incredible story. There's just so much in what you've just said. I'm just curious... Do you feel that experience where those statements came to you, you were saying you had that experience prior to your diagnosis, do you feel that that helped you deal with the diagnosis at all or there's many ways in which life operates that's mysterious to us? It sounds to me as I hear that, having obviously not gone through what you've gone through, but having that level of insight, that incredibly deep insight prior to a diagnosis like that, do you feel that that helped you in any way deal with it or? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, even though I'd read a lot of books based on, you know, spiritual development all kinds of all my life and I was always searching for the meaning of everything all the time before I ever got sick. So it was already on my kind of agenda on a daily basis. I really needed those statements to help me because I realized only by losing it, who I thought I was was aligned with my physicality because I had a really, uh, people that see photos of me now just back then just go, a guy I, was, I walk on the beach with yesterday, I never really told him a huge amount about my past. And yesterday we got into this discussion. I told him I used to be a male stripper 
does one of the jobs I did of many. And um, he was like, oh, really? And I said to him, mate, I didn't look anything like I look now, look, do look like now. I showed him a picture that was on my phone that I remembered of, which I, I've shown to you, that picture of, of me for that shot for that calendar. And he was looking at it and he's going, oh, I, that's unbelievable because he saw what I looked like physically. And I had become very mentally aligned with what I look like physically because I was very, very strong. I had an, an amazing physique on a physical level and I had a, a different life because I had m- many women in, in my life at once. I had people coming to my studio, women come to my studio, I wanted to sleep with me. I had a whole different experience, you know, and now my life is the opposite, complete opposite of what it was. And so when I got cancer, I got leukemia, in such a short period of time, my body devoured itself. I went from being like 90 kilos, very powerful, very strong, and very confident, confident in my physical power, power and strength, where I would just love um, taking on physical projects. Like when I bought the church that I bought and developed it into an arts hub, three uh, years in the trenches I spent doing all the hardest labour jobs, demolishing brick walls and everything because I loved the fact that I could do it. And then I went to the opposite where I was so sickly and went down to 60 kilos and I thought I'm going to die and I couldn't walk, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't lift anything, I couldn't do anything. And I watched my body in such a short period of time completely devour itself to become unrecognisable. And it was like an abstraction because I'd be in hospital looking at myself going, whoa, what happened? You know, it's just I didn't get a chance to mentally adjust to the process. It just happened so quickly. So it was an incredible experience because I went from one thing to another and all of a sudden I had to align myself with what I had become instead of what I was. And that was difficult because I had to let go of what I was. And that took a while to do because it was very difficult to let go of of what I thought I was and what mattered and what I had aligned myself with, even subconsciously aligned myself with being that, you know, where other men would envy what I looked like and women would look at it as a huge attraction. But, of course, you know, the statement you just are, is saying all that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And even though I knew that um, on an intellectual level before, um, because I never overvalued what I looked like physically, and I knew one day I would lose it, I didn't put myself above anybody else because I, ha- I looked like that because I knew intellectually it wasn't, didn't matter. It wasn't something to hold on to. But, of course, I did hold on to it in a way. It became part of my identity. Couldn't, how could it not be? Because it was what I carried around with me every day. I think that those statements helped me let go of it faster. But it took time. So those statements, you just are and what's the other one? We make something out of everything. We make something out of everything. You just are and we make something out of everything. I can only imagine, Anthony, because, you know, and this is definitely something that not so many of us consider. And I think such a, an incredibly helpful place to live your life from, no matter what you're dealing with, but particularly in the relationship space, 
when we, because we're very good at projecting our identity onto someone else, we're very good at projecting rules onto other people, we're very good at saying, oh, no, you need to do it this way or, no, that's wrong, that's right, or you're disrespecting me or you should be more like this or you should be more like that or I this or I that. So we're very, very good at putting meaning onto everything and we're very, very good at forgetting who we really are. You know, I know we had a brief chat before we, we press record today because what you've just said is an incredible story, Anthony, and for, for many people to go from being someone who was, as you say, so physically in your body and that's such an important part of your life, that physicality and, and, and being able to have experiences, you know, that I know that's been a huge driver for you and really to have that, the form of that completely changed. What do you think enabled you to draw strength as you moved through what other people would say would be, you know, an inc- incredibly traumatic and frightening experience? Still dealing with, by the way, this Anthony's still dealing with this in this current time. This isn't like something that's in the past. This is still Anthony's current kind of experience, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have difficulties every day because I've got, a, I've got a disease from my first transplant, which is called graft-versus-host disease, and I got it severely. And it's hard to explain because it's a disease very few people know about. You can only get it through a bone marrow transplant, which is my immune system was completely killed off. And at that point, a lot of people die at that point because they told me I had 20% chance I would die from just being take, having my immune system wiped out completely. And then they transplant another immune system into mine. Mine came from a 31-year-old man from Tasmania. And they do that through giving me his blood. He's been given a drug to get all his bone marrow to go into his blood very quickly. And then they take his blood out and give it to me. So I've got lots of his bone marrow. So by the time they give it to me, I'm in a zero, what they call fatal. It's called fatal. Um, it's a position where you're taken to where you can die very easily. You get a cold, you're dead, you get anything. So you're in an isolation room, everyone has to wear masks and everything to come in. This is before COVID, of course. So they give it to me through a blood transfusion. Now, because I'm dying, I'm in a fatal position, my bone marrow just grabs that blood and puts it into my bones and then creates more bone marrow from that. And so it fills all my bones with bone marrow that belongs to somebody else. And as soon as that process is finished, then my body goes, hold on a second, this is not our bone marrow. We didn't make this. This has come from somewhere else. So then my body rejects it and goes, this shouldn't be in here, so let's reject it. So my immune system attacks me. Uh, my immune system attacks me because I'm an alien body to it because it came from somebody else. So that is, that's what causes the disease. So some people get it moderately. Some people get it worse. I got it quite severely. Some people get it on their face. I've got scars on my legs that look like someone's burnt me with a blowtorch. And I've seen people in hospital who have that on their face. And I was lucky I didn't get it on my face. But what it does, it fuses up all your fascia. So your fascia is the layer between your muscle and your skin that helps you to do anything because it glides across your muscle so you can move. When your fascia fuses, you lose your movement. I still can't straighten my legs, but I'm getting closer to be able to straighten them. I couldn't walk properly. I've got it in my eyes even now. Um, So my eyes can go 
through extreme pain in my eyes because it dries all my eyes out. I've got it in my throat, in my mouth. That's why I have to keep drinking water because I hardly produce any saliva. So I've had bouts of choking on food because I can't get it down because I don't produce saliva. And I've had massive pain in my eyes. At times, usually by every night, by 9 o'clock, my eyes are gone, my left eye in particular, and I have to go to bed. I have to go to bed anyway because I get tired, but I can't see properly. And in the mornings, I can't see for the f- properly for the first hour at all because my eyes get so dry that during the night, the sleep buildup gets caught under my eyelids and I've got to wash my eyes out every morning just to get them functional. Then I've got to put drops in them. I'm gonna, then I've got to wait and then put more drops in them until I can see without having to keep opening and closing them all the time. I have it in my stomach. The skin in my stomach is about an inch thick from inflammation. I've got, and when they did my kidney transplant and opened me up, they said I've got an inch of inflammation at the back of my stomach as well. So my stomach pulls me forward. And I've got like a little gut, looks like a, a little gut, but it's not fat. It's all inflammation in my stomach. So that's what the disease does. So um, I use a walking stick still, but at times I've been on crutches and I've been in a wheelchair, not being able to walk really at all for short periods of time um, because of that disease. So that disease makes life very challenging. And also, because it's, it also gave me chronic fatigue, because my body is under attack all the time, very ferociously, you're, there's no energy left for me. The attack is using up all the energy. So I, had, I, have, I have fatigue now, but I wouldn't say it's chronic fatigue, but I've been through having chronic fatigue, which has been incredibly depressing when you've, just got, when you've come from being a very active, extremely driven person being wiped out and having no energy and everything is a massive effort. Having a shower was a massive effort. And some days I go, you know what, I just can't have a shower today because I cannot do it. I can't do it. I can't stand, stand up that long in the shower anyway. It's painful standing up in the shower because of my um, fascia being stuck and not moving. So it's a really bizarre disease, but really that's the big thing I have to deal with now, you know, post the kidney transplant. Wow, Anthony, I, I, I cannot even, and, and nobody can, you know, this is true for us all. Unless you've experienced something yourself, you've got no idea of what someone's experience is. One of the things that I've been so humbled by since meeting you, Anthony, is, is your level of humility and the grace with which you talk about this and, and move through this. And I know you've had your dark, dark times, of, of course. You know, I'm curious with the things that you deal with on a daily basis and the loss of, you know, that person that you very much saw as, as who you are, that where you identified your, you know, your body and all of those things, what is it that you draw strength from now? Because I think this is incredibly helpful for people and especially in this point of time in life, you know, the, the onslaught of COVID and the ramifications of that on people's livelihood, people's mental health, on businesses, on countries, on all sorts of things. There's a lot of fear in the world, a lot of people who feel that the rug's been pulled out from there's a lot of people where their previous lives, they, they haven't got back. You know, my husband's a musician. You know, I know many of his friends have not played a gig or or done anything live music-wise for a couple of years now, what gives you strength or what do you draw from that enables you to keep showing up to life each day? 
Well, at times I, I haven't wanted to show up to life each day. And, look, I don't want to make a drama out of what's happened to me because I don't feel it's worthy of being a drama. And that's I've seen so many people in hospital. I've known people who have suffered so much from cancer, whatever. I went through periods of feeling like a victim of something, but those periods didn't really last very long. And even when I got initially diagnosed, I was afraid because when you hear the word cancer, you've got cancer. And you've got very serious cancer. The first thing that comes into your mind is into your emotions is fear. But then after time, you realize that having cancer and imagining having cancer, there's a huge difference between the two. Because cancer really fundamentally is just a word. And that word can become super imposing. But when you're told you've got it, you go, oh, I've got cancer. But you're still in the same body, in the same reality. It's just that someone's thrown a word at you. And the fear kind of didn't last for a long period of time. I guess before I got told I had cancer, I became a yoga junkie because I do everything like to extreme. So I was doing yoga every day for an hour. I had an amazing teacher. It was all about the spiritual element of yoga. It's all about breathing and being in contact with the breath and the breath had to drive every movement I did. And when I got put into hospital, I went, okay, well, you know, um, and I did say this to myself at the time, this is another way of experiencing my consciousness because that's all it is really fundamentally. Sure, I might be afraid and I, I not, might not want it, but that doesn't matter because I'm not running the show anyway. So it's been bestowed upon me. So it's an experience. It's an amazing experience to go through seeing yourself in a predicament of extreme vulnerability and having elements of fear creeping in all the time close to your own mortality, you know, because we all know we're going to die. But when you're actually there thinking, I'm really going to die, because that's what I thought, because I thought I'd be, I would be well dead by now. Because I watched my brother die, you know, with the same illness right in front of me. I was very close to him and I was visiting him all the time. And when he died, I still thought he wouldn't die. And then when I got the phone call, I was at hospital that before he died. And my parents were there when he died. My dad rang me and said, John's dead. And I was like, what? This can't happen. This is not the way it's meant to be. I just still thought he'd find a way of surviving, but he didn't. And then I just thought when I was diagnosed with the same leukemia, I thought that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go like that too. That added an element to it because I've seen it with my brother. The same thing happened to him. But I found that my breath became the most important thing. I always remember the first time I was lying in the hospital bed, I watched this really fluorescent orange fluid go through me into my catheter and that was my first hit of chemotherapy it looked like an evil poison the color of it and everything and i'm watching it go into my vein and i cannot believe i'm lying here and this is what's happening to me but i thought but whoa what an experience i never imagined what an experience of my consciousness to have this experience happening to me right now wow what a trip you know because it's, to me, it's all a trip. Like life is just one big acid trip, you know, and you just got to ride it out. And my breath got me through so much because I just kept on resorting back to my breath to keep breathing and keep in contact with my breath. And that's what I do with my meditation practice, which I've been doing for a long time too. It's the same thing, you know. It's just going back to the breath all the time, the in-breath, the out-breath. And you breathe yourself through the suffering, the pain, the fear, and, of course, at times it overwhelms you during the whole process because it's been a long process. 
And there's been many times when I've been close to dying, but I'm not afraid because I guess it comes through practice. <laughs> I kind of go, well, you know what? I want to die. I, I really want to go. I want to go to the other side because I know it's going to be awesome over there. So just take me for fuck's sake. So I say to, to God, just take me. I'm ready. I want to go. Take me this time. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't take me. You go, no, nah, no, nah. this has to go through more pain and suffering and go back to zero and then rebuild yourself again. And that's what I've done so many times is keep having to rebuild from zero all the time. Because when you get to the point, I'm not, I nearly died from kidney failure, fluid filled my lungs, three quarters filled my lungs. I ended up in, um, in intensive care for nine days on a respiratory mask. I couldn't breathe without respiratory system put into me. But the day before, I was creating a, a community garden a massive project and I was down there drilling and I had water fluid being pushed out of the pores of my skin and running down my leg and I I was all bloated from fluid but I thought you know what's more important at the moment (laughs) drilling this panel into the wall to finish this project so my friend helped me we worked till dark and finished the project the next day was the big launch so she came back and sat at my place so I went to bed. In the morning, I woke up. I couldn't breathe. I was like, <gasps> so I said to her very calmly, because she can be a panic merchant, can you drive me to the hospital? So she drove me to the hospital. As soon as I got there through emergency, they just jumped on me because I thought this guy's about to die. And um, they put me into, into, into intensive care. And they drained um, 12 kilos of fluid off me in about three hours Went from 84 kilos back to 71 kilos in three, four hours. And they showed me the X-ray and said, dude, you should be dead. And they showed me an X-ray. My lungs were three quarters full of fluid. And they're going, why did you come here now? Why did you come here days ago? And I, I didn't really know what to say. I just got carried away with the project. <laughs> that became more important than saving my lungs. But somehow I thought, I'm just going to leave anyway, so what does it matter, you know? So I'll just keep going and drilling this panel in. It was an interesting experience being in um, intensive care for nine days. Somehow I thought, well, I'm sure I'll I'll get my breath back again, and I did, but I could have not because it obviously did damage to my lungs. You know, I felt my lungs three quarters full of fluid. But eventually I learned to breathe on my own again and got out of intensive care. I'm hearing a theme as you speak per se, even from when you, you very first started this conversation and you were talking about you don't own your work, your work comes through you, that when it comes to manifesting in anything, and you and I know we've had many conversations about what an amazing manifester you are, and I think we need to do a whole other episode on manifesting, I think is something people are very, very curious about. You were sort of saying, I don't focus on the how. I kind of just hand myself over. And I think in, in many ways in what you're saying, especially, you know, having gone through that process where you were purging and going through that, where you realised, you know, those, those two statements, you just are, we make something out of everything. And as you talk about your illness and how you, you moved through that, what I'm hearing is this theme of handing yourself over. And I think this is something that we all struggle with the little human as i as i talk about with my relatable students and my clients a little the little human when things don't go the human's way we hold on tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and yeah. obviously when we do that our suffering increases enormously and we become more and more of the thing that we don't want 
And so yep. what I'm hearing you say is that you've kind of handed yourself over. I mean, of course, there's been times where you've held on tight. We all do that. That's that's the humanness of being human. That goes without saying. You're kind of holding yourself over and you're also focusing on what matters to you in this moment of now, like finishing the project, even though you were drowning in fluid, as you, as you just talked about. It's like, this is what matters to me in that moment of now. And as you hand something over, would you say you're more in tune with the now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it's really difficult to do, but, yeah, to hand yourself over. I've gone from believing in um, a higher force running my life. There's a big difference between believing and knowing. I know now. I've had too many experiences that I don't believe anymore. I know. That makes it easier on one level because when we're consumed by the human life, And life becomes really hard because some people just don't believe and that's okay, that's up to them, you know, because I could be wrong because because I'm at a stage where I'm ignorantly, I just know. It's not hard for me to give myself over to the fact that, you know, I'm not running the show. The other thing that's really helped me get through for a long, long time, way before I got sick is I'm really into loving kindness. Every time I walk out the door, every day, I make contact with as many people as I can and I'm give them as much loving kindness as I can because I'm very open I think energetically people pick up on it and yesterday I was walking with a person that's lived on the beach for like 15 years and she said and I was saying all these people go hi they are hi how are you going and she's going how come you know all these people when you've only been here for six months and I go darling it's easy because I'm open they pick up on the energy I always make a point of making contact with them. How are you going today? You know, blah, blah, blah. Even if I feel shit out, because it takes my focus off me, 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 and puts it on to what I can bring to someone else's life, regardless of how I feel or what condition I'm in. I was been like that for a long time. Even in the hospital, I remember one of the nurses came to me and they said, we were just in the staff room before and we, we, are, we said, okay, everyone has to name their favourite patient in the hospital. And she said to me, you know what, four out of five of them said you. And I said, oh, that's wonderful to hear. And that's because even if I felt like shit or I was throwing up or whatever, I would always make the effort to be kind to the nurses or whoever was around me, the other patients. I try and be patient with the other patients. I would always make that effort, not because I'm a wonderful person, but because to me that was a priority. That was always a priority and still is a priority every day, more so than ever now. Nothing else really matters but that practice. Everything becomes second and third to that practice. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yes, because you're you're focusing on con- contribution, which is a very important part, I think, of our spiritual involvement and 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 all of those things. And I love what you said about focusing on love and kindness. You know, so many of us forget that. And and what I love as well is that you said, not because I'm a a wonderful person, you know, it's not coming from ego. I've got to, you know, prove myself and I want people to see that I'm a great person. It's just generally coming from that is, as you say, an important practice and it's an important part of who you are. And absolutely, Anthony, it oozes out from from you everywhere energetically you can feel it and as I've said to so many of my students and clients you know our energy enters the room before we do and it's our biggest Mm -hmm. biggest blind spot and in relationships the energy that you bring flavors everything and Mm -hmm. even when we think our energy is neutral you know we're flavoring it we're always 
flavoring it you know even when just even that lovely distinction you just provided for people there i'm bringing that not because i want people to see i'm great and i think so many of us do that innocently inadvertently i I think there's a great innocence amongst human beings that we do things because we want people to to think we're good we want people to like us and there's nothing wrong with that guys if you're listening This, this is not a criticism but it's a completely different flavor when you're doing something from ego versus when you're not. When it comes to being great at our relationships, when it comes to how we show up in that space, this is the dance that the human is dancing. This is the dance, the dance of the mm. ego and the dance of something else. And as you expand into something else, which is what Anthony is talking about and what he's pointing to, you bring a different level of light, a different energy. It's, it's incredible the profound impact that it has on the people around you. We are way, way more powerful than we understand. And we have this incredible ability to create. And I love how you say that creation is coming through us. We are the conduits of it. And it shows up in many different ways. You may not be an amazing artist like Anthony. You are creating moment to moment to moment to moment. And the more you can see that, the more you, instead of looking out and saying, oh, I'm not feeling good because of this. I'm not feeling good because that hasn't happened or this should have happened or this could have, would have, should have. You actually start to build a muscle of checking on where you are at and the flavor that you're bringing. And you become a lot more humble about that. It's difficult to be humble and graceful when it looks like you are at the mercy of life or another person. It's a lot easier to bring humility and grace into your life, love, kindness, those things that are amazingly good for our soul and amazingly good for everybody else around us. When you are able to understand what Anthony is pointing to and to look in a very, very different direction. So I love that, Anthony. I think that brings us to the other day when we were talking, you were talking about love and you were talking about the work ethic of love. And I think that's a great segue to bring that because I thought, oh, I think this is perfect for Relatable in amongst many other things that you've talked about today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I can lead into it by saying that when I catch myself doing, because I'm really into trying to, well, let's say do good deeds for other or gift people with things. So I'm always conscious of doing that, like to the point where if I know that my housemate loves dark chocolate and I'm in the supermarket and I forget to get some for him, he never asked me for it, I'll go back into the supermarket and go, I'm going to get some dark chocolate for my friend. Now, if I go back into the supermarket, get the dark chocolate for him and give it to him as a gift, then it's not coming from me, it's coming through me. That thought to go back into my and get dark chocolate for him is, you know, let's say for a better word, it's God saying, hey, you know, what about this? Now, if I act on that and I go back and I give him the chocolate, then I go up and tell somebody, you know what I did today? I bought some dark chocolate for Alex to make him feel good. Then I've just reneged on the gift that God gave me to give that to somebody else because I've reverted it from taking the channeling of God making me aware of the fact that I could do something here to turning it into a human ego thing. So from my point of view, I'm much better off not telling anybody else that I did it. And if Alex wants to tell somebody that I bought that chocolate for him, it's a very simple example. That's up to him, but it's not my place to turn it into a human ego thing because then I'm throwing it back in God's face, the gift that was given to me to give to somebody else. Does that make sense? Mm, It does. I talk to myself a lot. I, I will tell myself, If I do that, if I 
throw it back in God's face, I say, you've just been a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees were the ones that used to put all the money in the, in the, in the poor box so everyone could see them doing it. So the, their deepest intention was to be seen being good, not to aid. And there's a huge difference between the two. Mm-hmm. There really, really is, and, and thank you for pointing that out. And I just want to say, if you're listening and you find the word God triggering, this is not a religious conversation. You can replace that word with source energy, the intelligence behind life, the universe, wisdom. You, you could use whatever word works for you. Don't get hung up on a word and then dismiss what's being said here. This is just language, okay? And for those of you who hold God in a high, high regard, please don't mean I'm dissing on God either. But I know that that can be a very triggering word for people. It's very, very important in life and it is a big part of what I teach in my Relatable program and part of that work that I do that, you know, in order to be great at relationships, it's very important that you have a solid, healthy relationship with your own divinity, with your spiritual nature, if you want to call it that, or God, whatever that word is. This is very, very important. This is where humility and grace come from. If you are not connected or looking in that direction or acknowledging it, it is very hard for you to get past your ego because your ego wants to prove, justify, and defend. And so in relationships, this is incredibly problematic. People are constantly coming from a place of defending, justify, or proving, which in itself creates a lot of toxic patterns and dysfunction. And so, you know, when you get to a point where there's no need for you to do that, and it doesn't mean that you are a a doormat or you don't address things, you just come from a different place. And I, I love that distinction that you just gave, Anthony, about kind of showing people this is what I've done versus aiding somebody. This is very, very, very important. There's a huge difference yeah. between the two, a huge mm. difference between the two. Mm. And the temptation to go around saying, oh, my God, you know what I did today to help somebody is there, but you've got to go, no, you resist the temptation because when you resist it, you're in some way you're showing a deeper love for yourself. You're embodying a deeper connection to a higher source. But as soon as you throw it away, you're resorting back to being human. And one thing I think is really important is that we're half spiritual and we're half human. We're half and half. So why do most of us live our lives 99% in the human world, where everything in the human world matters so much, instead of investing far bigger percentage into the spiritual side of things? which I can give you millions of examples of how to do that from my point of view, but they're not, I'll just go on forever. But I think people would understand there, there is a way. And the more you connect to the spiritual side of what you are, the more it opens up to you and the more you see what you can do and how you can breathe your own breath into the spiritual embodiment, which is 50% of who you are anyway, if that makes sense. Oh, it does, Anthony. I agree wholeheartedly. This is where we can draw comfort from the unknown. This is where we can rest in the unknown. This is how we can deal with the unexpected without the huge amounts of, actually, that's not the right word. It's not without something. It's actually, regardless of what your experience is, being able to move through it with grace being able to move through any kind of experience that comes your way. Now, when we do that, we just show up to life and the people around us so, 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 so differently. And absolutely, the more connected you are to your spiritual nature, the 
the more you see there is nothing for you to prove, justify or defend. The sheer fact that you took your first breath is enough. You are enough. There is, you do not need to justify your existence. We are the only species that feels the need to do that. You do not need to justify yourself to somebody who doesn't agree with you. You can lovingly allow them to have their reality and you can move on with yours. That's called being sovereign and honoring of yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. There is this amazing synchronicity that starts to show up in your life when those things are the driving force in your world. And for so many people, they are. And I love what you just said. You know, we are 50% spiritual and 50% human, yet we have been conditioned to be relying 90, 95 plus percent on the human aspect of our nature, which is why I get so many clients coming to me and they will say this, Fiona, I've ticked every box. I've got more than enough money in the bank. I've got a lovely home. I've got a holiday home. I'm married to a lovely person. I've got kids. I enjoy what I do and I'm unhappy. Why am I unhappy? I can't tell you how many people have come to me and asked me that question. Or I just feel like there's no purpose in, in my life. I have no, no purpose. I don't get joy out of life. Now, those are questions. And if you are feeling that way, it's because you are being, you are being encouraged and nudged to look in your spiritual direction. Those people who ask me that are very disconnected from that. So I can guarantee that is what's going on for them. Because when you are connected to your spiritual nature, those are questions that don't arise for you. You do feel a sense of fulfillment. You see joy in the ordinary everyday things. Your expectations of life are lower. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying expectations are a negative thing, but expectations can destroy relationships and cause an incredible amount of unhappiness, especially if it looks like our well-being depends upon them being met. I love what you're sharing here, Anthony. I really wanted you to be here today for so many reasons. I think you're just a beautiful, beautiful man. Sharing what you've gone through and your honesty around that and seeing your connection to your spiritual nature. I, I think this is important for all of us and it's become more and more something that I see as so very, very important when it comes to our levels of well-being, joy and the depth, breadth and quality of our relationships, whether it be in those three areas. And, and I talk about this a lot, your relationship with you, your relationship with life or the divine or God or source or whatever you want to call it, and then there's your relationship with others. But it's these two, your relationship with you and your relationship to source, that really has a massive impact on your relationship with others. And so it is very much these three areas that we want to be in, in exploration of when it comes to us having a very different experience of life and a very different experience, obviously, of the, of the people around us. One more thing about what we were just talking about. If someone's feeling miserable about the life they've got because they've got all the human things they thought would make them happy, then I would suggest, my suggestion would be, if you've got a neighbour who's a pensioner, go and ask them if they need their lawns mowed or just do something outside of what you normally would do. Extend yourself past your comfort zone and that's a work ethic. But if you do that, you're actually showing love for yourself. You're expanding your boundaries by showing love for your neighbour. And once you've mowed the lawns for your neighbour who's a pensioner that can't do them, the feeling you'll get from that will be the beginning of investing in your spiritual side and seeing that you're fundamentally connected to her 
And by expanding your comfort zone, because you might not feel like going and mowing your neighbor's lawns because yours need mowing first, but you're better off just going, you know what? Fuck my lawns. I'm going to go see if Daisy across the road needs her lawns mowed. And she might just go, oh, my God, thank you so much. So what you're doing is an amazing act because you're seeing her. You're witnessing her. And that means a lot to her. I'm just, just giving this as a basic example. This example could come in a million different ways. And the work ethic of putting the work into doing her lawn is an amazing thing that you're doing for yourself to expand your own boundaries of who you can be. And it's a way, if you can see it this way, it's a way of showing self-love for yourself because self-love has to come first before love to others. But they can both come at the same time. If you want to go into the work ethic, I'll give you an example, right? another example closer to the bone, let's say that you, Fiona, and I are in a relationship, right, a, a romantic relationship. So we met each other, we fell in love, and we went through the early stages of romantic love where everything was easy and all adoring and wonderful. But then we grow out of that stage. By nature, let's say that I'm a, je- a jealous person. And because you've given all your energy to me initially, I've given all mine to you, there's been a huge artificial comfort that's come from that. For both of us. Let's say we get to the point where we move past that, we're starting to move into the next stage. And you might say to me, I really like my ex-boyfriend, he's a really nice guy, I've, I've had a good friendship with him, he wants to catch up. Now, I can go, oh no, that's not, that's not cool with me because I'm jealous. So because I'm a jealous person, I'm going to act on my jealousy and try and limit your life to appease my human life, not my spiritual life. That's not appeasing my spiritual life. But if I can come to the point where I go, you know what, Anthony, you need to just let her go out with him and have a great time with him and encourage her to do that, even if you feel uncomfortable about it, even if you're going to be mentally consumed by the thoughts of maybe she's going to fall in love with him again, maybe she's going to leave me. Because if you do, do it, and you can let go and live through, survive those feelings, you're showing love for yourself. And I'm showing love for you as well at the same time because I'm expanding my boundaries and working through my jealousy, which is just a human fabricated emotion that's based in no reality. And by doing that and surviving it, I'm showing love for myself ultimately and I'm showing love for you. And that's the work ethic. The work ethic is I have to go through the difficulty of that process with you. But ultimately what I'm doing is Once I survive it, I've gone, wow, I survived it. It wasn't that hard. And I've expanded my boundaries of potential of showing love towards you as well as potential of expanding my own boundaries of myself and showing love for me as well at the same time. Does that make sense? I love that. It does, and I love that explanation. That makes so much sense. Thank you. It really, really, really does. Thank you. I love that. This is what's on offer if you want it, okay? Not everybody does, and this conversation is not going to resonate with everybody. I totally appreciate that, and that's okay. These are the opportunities that we have to evolve and expand. This is what's available to the human, and I'm telling you, the feeling you get from doing that is extraordinary, that feeling of expansion where you can feel that you've grown through something that has been painful, difficult, uncomfortable. Now, I've not experienced what Anthony has gone through at all. I would say it's pales into into, um, comparison. I get a sense of the incredible depth of feeling that's available to me because I have expanded through whatever my limitations are. And when I say 
expanded through. I'm constantly doing them. There's no end to that. You know, when I look back at some of the the hardships I've gone through and everybody has gone through hardships, we do because that's how we expand. It's how we evolve. But I love what you're talking about, that by doing that for someone, you are giving love to them and ultimately yourself. When you say, no, you can't do that, you can't have that because it makes me uncomfortable, you limit your own expansion. And this is what people don't understand they're doing all of the time. And this is why people become so unhappy. They think it's because of something that's happened to them or the fact that life hasn't gone their way or someone's done something or because they maybe they don't feel like they are enough or there's something missing. But you're actually unhappy because you've limited your expansion. There's incredible joy on the other side of expansion. And it doesn't always mean that life is easy and that you get what you want and things work your way. Sometimes that means walking away from a relationship or a situation or or whatever it means, saying goodbye to something you don't want to say goodbye to. But there is incredible, and to me, the only word I can describe is depth of feeling as to what's available to you on the other side of that. And it's the depth of feeling that's where joy comes from. That's where potential comes from, possibility. It doesn't come from the things that you have. It comes from the depth of feeling that you get to experience. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that's very true. I think that's really important because my interpretation of love is it's an infinite. Like when we cross over to the other side, we're going to learn a shitload about love that we cannot consume with a mental, with our mental capacity as a human being. But while we are in this human world, I see love as a always, it's a work ethic, always. It never ends because as soon as you expand into that dimension, you've got to expand to another one. Now, if your love is lazy, then to me, it's not really love. Now, lots of people are going to think that I'm full of shit, but you know, fundamentally, Let's say, now you've got a dog, right? You know, you adore do. your dog. Right? I your do. Dog. Yep. So think of somebody in your life that you feel, you don't have to say who they are, that you love, you feel you love very much, but is a difficult person, is a difficult person to love, right? Now, which one of those two is easier to love? The dog or the difficult person in your life who you feel you love? Oh, the we- dog, for yeah. sure. For sure. And you know why? Because there's no work ethic there. Because the dog will love you even if you kick it in the guts tonight. It'll love you in the morning. It'll come up to you and all over you going, I love you, I love you, I love you, because it's dependent on you, you know. There's no work ethic in that relationship. So some people are going to go, you know, what I'm saying is bullshit because they love their dog and their dog loves them. And I'm not denying that on one level, but that's an easy love. There's no work ethic in that love. You don't have to work really hard to get your dog to love you, right? But the person that's difficult in your life, you have to work hard to love that person at times because it's difficult. And that's the work ethic. And the work ethic expands you, but when there's no work ethic, it doesn't expand your notion of love and your potential to give in, in difficulty. By saying that, if you, when you give in difficulty, the same thing applies to what I was saying before. If you go off and tell everybody, you know what I did? I let Fiona go out with her ex-boyfriend. Wow, aren't I amazing? So good to do that. Because lots of people are going to go, oh, how could you let Fiona go out with her ex-boyfriend? Oh, my God. And that's a ridiculous point of view, in my opinion. But if I go around telling everybody as a way of trying to make out that I'm great because I did it, then straight away I'm throwing something in the face of my own expansion. I'm better off keeping it between me and God. 
mm. you know, mm. and not between me and other human beings for them to make judgments on it. Because I know that by doing that has expanded my potential spiritually and on a human level. I don't need to go around telling everybody. I just become a Pharisee if I do that. Mm. And being a Pharisee is not the way to go. If you realize you have a potential close relationship with your creator, then the business is between you and him, mm. between you and your guys, you and your angels. It doesn't need to be taken into the human context because then it becomes something else, if that makes sense. I really do love that. And it's that whole thing about doing the right thing when no one's looking. I think about that like when I walk my dog. Yeah. Whether someone's walk, looking or not, I always pick up. I just, you know, and you'll walk along and you'll see dog poo on a path, right? It's amazing we, how we will let something go when no one's looking, but when someone's looking, we'll do the right thing. So it's that whole thing, what do you do when no one's looking? Because that's when it really matters. If my deepest intention is to be seen, then that's exposing my deepest intention because I only do it when people acknowledge me doing it. But if my mm-hmm. deepest intention is to do good and to serve, then I don't even think about whether I'm seen or not. And that really gives you an inclination into what is your deepest intention. It's important to know what that is because you can change your deepest intention. You can evolve your deepest intention. You can, but you've got to have awareness around what it is. Yes, the world is always giving you feedback, isn't it, really, as to what your deepest intention is if you want to look at it. It's the mirror. It's right there. It's always giving you feedback. This is why I think I love the relationship space so much because there's nothing like your relationships to mirror back to you what your deepest intention is and to see how you're actually really showing up. I'm curious, when you're talking about work ethic, and let's just say that you are, you know, you're being loving, kind and generous because I know this is going to come up for people listening to this episode and it comes up a lot with, uh, with my relatable students and so I think this is a really important question. If you're out there being loving and kind, you're bringing that work ethic, you're, you're getting past yourself, you are contributing to someone and you don't feel there's anything coming back or they don't appreciate it or you feel like there's a lot of cruelty coming your way, if you feel like it's going one way but there's nothing coming back, what would you say to someone who's in that situation? What I tell myself all the time is, and on the simplest level, when I, I walk the beach every day as part of my therapy and every person I can, I say hello to. And some of those end up being an amazing friendships, acquaintanceships, whatever. Some people will look at me like I'm a weirdo, right? And that pangs with some sort of rejection. It does. I'm human. So I'll feel a pang of rejection. And then I'll just tell myself, once you give it, it's gone. That's the most important thing to learn. Someone says to you, can you lend me $50? First thing you have to do is clock into yourself and go, Okay, if I lend this person $50, you've got to take a moment and they never pay me back because when I give it, it's gone. Will I resent them for it? And if the answer is yes, then you go, you know what? I can't lend you $50, but I can lend you 30 And then you go, can I let that go? And if you, if you feel like you could, lend them $30. I do this all the time. I give people things, I lend people money, and I forget about it. I just forget about it. And some people will pay me back and some people don't. I don't mark it down, write it down. That's their responsibility to pay me back if they want to. It's not my responsibility to keep asking them for the money because once I gave it, it's gone. And therefore, I have to let it go because as soon as I enter into wanting it back off them, if I'm doing them a favor, 
then it's a deal. It's an agreement. It's a contract. But if I give it as a gift to them with the hope that they might pay me back, then that's different. And when you give it, it's gone. It's gone. And if you've got resentment over something that you've given that hasn't been paid back or given back to you, then that becomes your problem because you didn't give it willingly. You didn't give what you're capable of giving. And everyone's level of giving is different. Some people are capable of giving a lot. Some people are capable of giving a little. There's no judgment. None's better than the other because if you give anything, it's great. If you give anything without wanting anything back, that's the ultimate way to give or lend anything because you don't expect it to be paid back or given back to you. You just give it because in that moment, that person needs it. And then if that person wants to pay it back, it's up to them. But it's gone. Once you give it, it's gone. Once you give it, it's gone. And that's how I go about it. Let's then transport that to a, say, a relationship. Because in many relationships, we give things expecting something back, don't we? Whether that be a parenting relationship, I'll do your washing, but I expect you to be good. Or this is what we do. We often in our relationships give with an expectation of something coming back. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to do that, by the way, if you were sitting there going, but hang on a minute, but I'm just curious. If you are in a relationship where you're giving and you're not getting anything in return ever or very little, because this is a question people are going to ask, what would you say to that person? Well, I'd say at a certain point when it starts to become difficult to bear, you stop giving. It doesn't mean you stop giving to to everybody else or anybody you want to give to. But in that relationship, if you feel at a certain point it's hurting you too much, and you can't give willingly anymore, then you just stop giving. You have to protect yourself because if you don't, then you'll stop giving to everybody. You'll stop giving to anybody because if you get to the point where you're over-resentful, then you'll judge everybody you give to as being the person that you feel duped you. And I've seen that with lots of people. They go, this person fucked me over. I gave them all this money, never paid me back. And therefore, they just stop giving to everybody because they're damaged. And as soon as they're damaged like that, they're useless on a spiritual level to anybody else because they can't give to anybody else, you know. And what we talked about the other day was with a, you know, romantic relationship too. And I'm no expert in romantic relationships, but I have amazing relationships in my life because I don't value a romantic relationship over a close, intimate friendship. To me, they're all relationships. And I have plenty of those kind of relationships without having a partner at the moment. In a romantic relationship, like we talked about the other day, when you first get together, I think there's three basic ways people interpret being loved. One is being told they're loved, one is affection, and one is being bought gifts. So when people get together initially in the romantic love stage, they tend to give all three. But then what happens over time, they resort back to giving the one they want. So if I keep giving you flowers because I want flowers, but you keep, but all you want is to be told that you're loved. So you're like, hey, he keeps giving me bloody flowers. I just want him to tell him that he loves me. But I'm giving you what I want. So the thing is that over time, you've got to clock into what that person needs to feel loved. And if they need flowers, then you buy them bloody flowers. Because when you buy them flowers, again, there's a work ethic there. You're going out of your comfort zone by illustrating to them all the time, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. 
And they're not picking up on that because they're thinking, but I want this, but I want this, but I want this. So you've got to work out what they want, what they need. And if they need flowers or they need affection or they need to be told their love, then go to your comfort zone because if you don't feel comfortable with giving affection all the time, just give it so they feel loved. If you really care about them, and then you're expanding your own boundaries of love for yourself and love for that person as well by clocking into what they need and not what you want to tell them what you want. In order for you to be able to do that, if you're listening, I think this is where it's really, really important to understand the space that you're coming from because we can think that we know what someone else wants, but often it's based on an assumption. Often it's based on us making stuff up and you've got to know when you're making stuff up because people make stuff up all the time. We really, really do. We're really good at making stuff up, us humans. I really love that explanation. Thank you so much, Anthony. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for the next three or four hours. We're we're going to have to do another episode. I just really want to thank you for your time and your insights and your wisdom, Anthony. I, I really do. It's been such a pleasure. And I think there's so much here for people to get on so many different levels from today's episode. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, my God, thank you. And everything that I said, I'm not responsible for because it came through me. I just want to say that first. <laughs> Don't hold responsible. I love that. Uh, and for those of you who want to know more about Anthony's art or anything about him, I will have links to his website and details about the mural that he talked about and all sorts of things in the show notes of today's podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Relatable where we are committed to taking the stress and confusion out of relationships. If you're keen to find out more, the best place to start is to head on over to my website, fionalukies.com.au, where you can download my free Relationship Masterclass video series or join the waitlist for Relatable, my brand new online program where I personally take you through how to have a great relationship with anyone.